Medtronic Technologies impacted more than 72 million people in the last year, equating to two people every second. Harnessing the power of technology to take healthcare further, each technology has unique benefits designed to serve patients. The goal of this program is to get closer to the patient and delve into the challenges and impact of each technology in practice. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. The INVOS monitoring system should not be used as the sole basis for diagnosis or therapy and is intended only as an adjunct in patient assessment. Medtronic's medical education programs are offered to provide attendees education on the FDA-cleared indications and use of our products when applicable. The contents and conclusions of the following program are solely those of the speakers unless otherwise noted. The speakers are responsible for all content and any necessary permissions. The speakers received funding from Covidian LP, a Medtronic company, for this speaking engagement. For this segment of the series, a discussion on the value of NEARS in clinical practice in the NICU, discuss examples of both cerebral and non-cerebral uses of NEARS monitoring. To help provide insight into these topics is Dr. Jonathan Mintzer, NICU Well Baby Nursery Medical Director at Mountainside Medical Center. Okay, let's get into some clinical examples. First, we're going to look at anemia, which is one of the most well-studied of the phenomena that are uh, that are evaluated using near-infrared spectroscopy. So how does anemia present from a regional tissue oxygenation perspective? What does the brain look like? What do the kidney and the uh, gut look like? And what is the response to a PRBC transfusion? Let's get back to our favorite graph here. Remember, over a range of oxygen delivery at normal metabolism, you see consistent oxygen utilization. Decreasing oxygen delivery, such as due to anemia, eventually crosses a critical O2 point such that oxygen utilization or consumption becomes dependent on oxygen delivery. Let's look at oxygen extraction. Decreasing oxygen delivery maintains stable extraction until eventually it starts to rise, until eventually you reach your critical O2 point, and then you see large rises in oxygen extraction and the appearance of a sick baby. Keep that in mind. Okay, here's our first study. This looks is a study on the PRBC transfusion effects on cerebral and renal RSO2 in anemic preemies. Okay, this is an important study in that now we can compare organ systems to each other and look at their responses to blood transfusion. Now, on the left, we have cerebral. On the right, we have renal. The orange lines at the bottom are babies with a low baseline RSO2 for cerebral on the left and renal on the right. The blue lines are higher baseline, greater than 55%. Those numbers were based on the Alder-Liston study that had come out at that point that demonstrated cerebral cutoffs of 55 to 85%. So they really wanted to look at what were the effects of blood transfusion if you were falling outside of that range. That's why they broke the uh, groups down into, into less than 55% baseline versus greater than that number. And what you see in cerebral is that, sure enough, after a blood transfusion, you see a robust rise in, the, uh, in cerebral RSO2 if the number was low to begin with. If the number was higher to begin with, and the kid was just with a low hematocrit and got transfused, you see less of an improvement in your uh, in your cerebral sets. Look at renal in comparison to that. If your renal numbers are low and you give a transfusion, you see an enormous, more than a doubling of your renal RSO2. If the baseline is higher, you still see a fairly robust effect, especially compared to cerebral. The take-home point for this was renal. Renal is telling you something. Renal could be your early warning system. Renal compared to the brain is potentially more sensitive to demonstrating perturbations in normal oxygen utilization. Therefore, you see more of a robust effect in response to a blood transfusion. 
Now let's look at another study. This was one of my own, actually, looking at booster transfusions that were given in the uh, in the NICU. Now, a booster transfusion is not something that is typically practiced anymore, but about uh, 10 years ago when I was uh, collecting this data, uh, booster transfusions were common. What this was, was if a baby had had more than 10 mLs per kilo of blood drawn in the first seven days of life, we gave a 15 per kilo blood transfusion to restore red blood cell mass or improve oxygen carrying capacity. So these were asymptomatic babies. Remember, asymptomatic, only being transfused because of blood out, because they had undergone a large degree of phlebotomy. So I said, okay, why don't we look at their FTOE before and after that transfusion, knowing that they were asymptomatic. And sure enough, after a blood transfusion, cerebral here on the left, decreased FTOE before, from before to after the transfusion. Renal in the middle. Here's the FTOE beforehand at about 0.4. It drops down afterwards. Splanknik demonstrated a, a, the same type of relationship. Remember, these were asymptomatic babies. So here we are, back to our graph. In booster transfusions, it's possible that due to excessive phlebotomy in the first week of life, we had babies that were fairly close or approaching their critical O2 point or, or somewhere near it compared to normal metabolism. By giving them a blood transfusion, we take them to the right on their oxygen extraction curve more towards normal. In other words, we had no way of knowing yet. They hadn't crossed their critical O2 point. So we had no way of knowing that they were actually having concerns delivering oxygen to their tissues. When we gave them a transfusion, we noticed oxygen extraction went down, taking them further away from their critical O2 point. Again, to assess a hematocrit, you need to draw blood. In order to look at FTOE, NEARS monitoring is a non-invasive, potentially proactive way of preventing us from getting to an anemic state close enough to the critical O2 point where blood needs to be transfused as an emergency. In other words, studies, well, as an extension of that, studies are now starting to take place in which FTOE cutoffs are being used as a potential guide for transfusion management among newborn babies. Okay, let's look at another set of studies. This looks at patent ductus arteriosus, one of the individual most controversial practices in neonatology when we ask our question, what do we do about an open PDA? So the question, does hemodynamically significant PDA cause changes in regional tissue oxygenation? What does the brain look like? What do other organs look like? And what are the responses to treatment? So how does a PDA supposedly affect our circulation? Well, if we have left-sided to right-sided ductal steel, you'll be stealing blood away from your, your vital organs and sending it back to the lungs. Hemodynamic significance is a term that has been um, fought over, I would say, for the last five to 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It's been, seem, it seems to constantly be a pendulum swift back and, uh, pendulum swift back and forth to determine what is hemodynamic significance and when is it so bad that we need to treat it? Remember, we're dealing with pulmonary overcirculation when there's a big left to right ductal steel and systemic underperfusion. So if we study the organs that are being underperfused, maybe that's a way of helping us decide when hemodynamic significance is occurring to the point of needing to treat a PDA. Very tough decision to make. Okay, let's look at some data. Okay, here is cerebral seen at the top, mesenteric at the bottom. And this study was done 2006 as a demonstration of what happens when you do a PDA ligation. What happens to our NEARS values in the brain and what happens to them in the gut? Now, pretend for a moment that you cannot see the gut perfusion at the bottom of this slide, that you cannot see mesenteric saturation, that it's not there. If you're only looking at cerebral sets, 
Okay, you see numbers in the 80s and the 70s, maybe in the 60s, a little bit of variability there. They don't necessarily look that abnormal. When a PDA ligation is done, okay, now you see a definitive increase over the next hour or so, hour, hour and a half or so, that takes place on the cerebral site. Look at mesenteric. The mesenteric numbers were bordering around immeasurable, 15, 20, for, out, for you know, 100 plus minutes. Then the ligation is performed, and all of a sudden it's like the gut wakes up and is being oxygenated again. Why am I showing you this? The brain alone doesn't tell you the full story. The brain is so stable. The brain has a dual blood supply. Other organ systems will divert blood to the brain. There's redistribution of blood flow. There's vasoconstriction, vasodilation to protect the brain. If you're only looking at the brain, you're not seeing the whole picture of a, a PDA significance. Let's look at another study. In this study done by uh, Valerie Chalk out of uh, Stanford, uh, I thought was one of the most straightforward examples of the value of monitoring organs other than the brain when it comes to making clinical decisions. Okay, here's our NEARS measures on the left, cerebral sats and renal sats in particular. Hemodynamically significant babies were compared to babies with a non-significant PDA, which were in turn compared to babies with low suspicion of PDA who didn't receive an echo. We compared cerebral between hemodynamically significant PDA and non-significant PDA, 68 versus 73. There was no difference seen on a statistical level. Renal, on the other hand, demonstrated an, a large clinical difference, 61 versus 70%. Now, on an individual baby, it's hard to determine exactly what to do with that. But if you add this data in to knowledge of having a large PDA with significant shunting taking place as seen on an echocardiogram, maybe this can help your clinical decision making. Can NEARS be used as a sole and only decision making point? No. But if you combine it with things that you're, uh, that you're already doing, combine it with other non-invasive measures, it provides information on what a baby is doing with its oxygen supply down to the tissue level. If brain is stable, great, but brain is always stable. If kidney is stable, that's great. It probably means your PDA that you're seeing on echo is not really affecting renal circulation. Why not keep, why not keep over time? However, if you do see that the kidney is showing lower numbers on RSO2 or a high oxygen extraction, that may help tilt the balance towards a treatment decision to treat that PDA. In other words, monitoring organs other than the brain provides more information that's potentially an early warning system since the brain is just so stable. Moving along. Okay. We talked earlier on about feeding intolerance and necrotizing enterocolitis in particular and doing gut monitoring. I think I've already painted a picture that the gut is very, very difficult to monitor. It's highly unstable, it's highly variable, and the numbers are essentially all over the place to use a, a less than scientific term. However, can tissue oxygenation monitoring aid in the management of feeding intolerance and suspicion for neck? My answer is a qualified, maybe, why not, let's give it a try, but there has to be more to the story than just these numbers. Okay, this is the first 14 days of life, looking at mesenteric values in babies with feeding intolerance and babies with neck. Now, this is early monitoring. It's the first two weeks of life. So the babies looked, looked at here, some of them had feeding intolerance while the study was going on. The neck babies, though, were babies who eventually went on to develop neck later down the road. Okay, if you look at the overall numbers, the no feeding intolerance group is demonstrated by the orange line at the top. The green line in the middle is the feeding intolerance group, and the blue is the neck group. 
if you look at these numbers and separate them out, yes, the babies with no feeding intolerance do show higher numbers than those with feeding intolerance, which in turn show higher numbers than those with neck. But look at the error bars. Actually tell the difference. They overlap between all three groups. If you're trying to do averaging, now the, the babies in this study were looked at as one hour's worth of data. But we've already shown in our variability analysis that taking a one hour average of data might not necessarily be the best way to, to demonstrate Splanknik Nears data. However, the numbers here do make sense. Can we look at this more robustly? Sure, this does need to be looked at closer. Can we do it more scientifically looking at it in shorter segments? That's what really needs to be done. But remember, with this degree of overlap, there, I don't believe there's a human being that can stand there watching the Splanknik monitor at the bedside and make this type of determination. Signal processing has to be able to take place. The daily NEARS data needs to be uh, somehow processed in, in five minute, 15 minute, 10 minute, maybe even three minute moving averages to tell these patients apart. The numbers are too variable. That's my, my take home from that. Now, if we look at the first seven days of life, there was another study done a couple of years later that it's again, NEARS values in the first seven days of life. The previous study was the first 14 days. This is the first seven days. And what they did was they looked at a big cohort of babies who never developed neck and compared them to a cohort of babies that did eventually go on to develop neck. At the time the data was being gathered, of course, they didn't know which babies would develop neck and which wouldn't. They were just gathering numbers and seeing what happened you know, as the babies got older. If you notice, the non-neck babies do show higher numbers and less variability. However, the neck babies, demonstrated lower numbers and more variability if you look at the error bars. There's a problem here, though. One, one problem is that, again, it's an hour's worth of data. Two pro another problem is that since there were only 14 neck babies, there's going to be more variability when you're only looking at 14 babies compared to when you look at 78 babies. Okay? The mathematics behind this are a little bit tough. Also, between days three and five, look at how close together the numbers come. Again, the error bars start to overlap to the point that there is no statistically significant difference at three and four days of life. What does this mean for your baby? Well, if you want to do Splanknik monitoring and you happen to see very low numbers and, and strange variability in the first couple of days of life, maybe you want to think about how you're feeding that baby. Maybe you want to evaluate that baby you know, extra carefully. Maybe you want to um, be careful about feeding that baby if you're using certain medications that can affect a mesenteric circulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. NEARS joins the picture as another non-invasive monitoring stream that provides important information for your baby that could potentially guide your decision-making. Is it the sole value that if above this number you do one thing and if below a certain number you do another thing? No, it cannot be. But that's not how medicine works for any variable that we use. If we add this into the picture, the hope is that we'll have more information to make more informed decisions, potentially even as an early warning system for babies that might get themselves in trouble without being closely monitored. Let's look at one last study. This was a study done uh, out of Italy uh, only a couple of years ago that was looking really at babies that were uh, with absent end diastolic flow and uh, were small for gestational age uh, with uh, IUGR. Okay, so you're going to see babies with abnormal Dopplers on the left side of this overall chart. On the right side, you see a comparison group with normal Dopplers. And what they did was they then broke these two groups down, the abnormal Doppler group and the normal group, into those babies who developed GI complications and those babies who did not. Now, look at only the two uh, box and whisker plots on the left side of this graph. 
On the left, you see the babies with abnormal Dopplers who never went on to develop GI complications. And you see what their, that orange box shows what their, what their nearest values look like. Compare those to ones with abnormal Dopplers who do show GI complications. Much lower numbers, but again, a degree of variability that does show some overlap. That similar relationship is now also demonstrated on the right side of the graph when you look at those with normal Dopplers. Babies with GI complications demonstrated lower splanchnic RSO2 compared to those who did not develop GI complications. Again, more data that demonstrates that splanchnic monitoring, even though it's drastically variable, even though it's very difficult to monitor, even though I've already made the statement that it's so difficult to monitor that doing so in real time at the bedside may not even be possible without appropriate signal processing, it may still provide useful information that aids in clinical decision making. Have we made it there yet? No, there needs to be more information, but there's a lot to study here. And the data certainly makes sense with what our expectations would be when we compare a group of normal babies compared to those with any form of a GI issue. So future directions here. Where to from here? More that needs to be done in NEARS. And I've been saying this for uh, more than a decade now. We need ongoing normative data collection. We need to determine values versus variability. We still don't know. Is the more important factor the number on the screen or how it's behaving? I have sided with the idea that the behavior of the signal is the more important factor, that individual numbers only tell us so much. What those numbers do over time gives you a third dimension, which then can provide more information. For example, a brain that's behaving more variable than you would expect is not a normally behaving brain. Therefore, that variability is a form of signal behavior. We need to explore this more over time. We also need more information on just simply what's normal versus what's abnormal, both in values and in variability. How can we translate this into our care practices? Can we use this to individualize our care more and um, you know, make the right decision for the right baby at the right time in a kinder, gentler manner? And of course, what are the long-term outcomes related to babies who are monitored using, using NEARS in this form of monitoring uh, compared to those who are not? Please tune in next week for a new segment from this series wherever you find your podcast. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. Thank you for listening.